Hey everyone, back again. Let's finish up Jack Halberstam's and a Queer Time and Place with Chapter 6 and Chapter 7 here. So before jumping into it, you know the spiel. Go check out the previous episodes. It'd be weird if you started out here. I'm sorry that I need to do this in like four parts. It's just that like, and you know, if you listen to this every week, it probably makes the most sense that you'd wait for all the episodes to come out and then just download them all and listen to them all at once. Uh, so that you remember. Um, but yeah, it's just that I guess it's the nature of the work, unless I wanted like four hour podcast episodes, which is uh, difficult for me to do. Uh, so anyways, let's finish off the text here with chapter six and seven. So starting from chapter six, titled Oh Behave. I can't do the accent. This is a commentary on Austin Powers. So for those of you that aren't familiar, we're going to be talking about Austin Powers, the film the first one, and a little bit of the second one, and uh, The Full Monty. So I'm going to describe what these films are about, and you can go and watch them or look up a synopsis if you want more information. They're cute, funny movies that Haverstam is going to celebrate for demonstrating alternatives to hegemonic standard forms of masculinity while also being suspicious or critical of the ways in which these films appropriate subcultural lives and uh, experiences and identities and uses them to essentially make jokes when for a lot of people you know these are, you know their lives aren't like austin powers's life but the lives that austin powers and other characters and other films are modeled off of are real people and it's not great to make a joke out of it and to essentially do it for profit so in popular culture of the LGBTQ plus IA2S community, largely white men, largely white men, white men, white gay men have been the most represented in popular culture. Their experiences, their lives have been the most documented in mainstream popular culture in Hollywood film and other big film industries. So they've had their experiences reflected in daily life and there's been some degree of reception and acceptance albeit still with a fair amount of restriction like it's not as though gay men don't experience uh gay white men don't experience discrimination of course they do but when compared to the experiences of lesbians or of gay people of color or lesbian uh women of color or trans other queer people there are just going to be so many more barriers to entering into the pop cultural scene in the mainstream. Not to say that people necessarily want this. A lot of cases, people don't want their lives to be uh, demonstrated on the big screen for everyone to see and make fun of and laugh at. Because to laugh at something is in part, um, it, can, it can happen in such a way as to respect the person who's being laughed at if they've attained and the group that they belong to have attained a certain degree of uh, power in that society. So this would be an example of punching up as far as the jokes go. But when jokes happen at the expense of marginalized people, then we have to interrogate what purpose is it serving for these identities to be displayed on the big screen for mass audiences. Now, Halberstam suggests that it might be that white gay men have attained a relative degree of status and acceptance in society, and I'm using that term very generally, we're just talking about 
North American European society where there are these like the, the these are the cultural zones we're referring to here where white gay men have attained some degree of um, acceptance. Halberstam suggests that this might be, be might be because they resonate with white women, whereas white lesbians do not resonate with white women and they do not resonate with white men. So they have no connection, no entry point into these positions of power in the same way that uh, gay men do. So like, for example, we all know, well, you might know, uh, what was it you said? Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, or now just Queer Eye, uh, the show with five gay men uh, who go around and give straight men and women, for that matter, makeovers and teach them how to properly live their lives, uh, throw a bunch of money at them, get them to renovate their house, teach them how to make a single meal, give them a wardrobe, and then they drive away. Uh, so it's, uh, yeah. So you wouldn't see the same kind of show, at least now, with five queer women giving makeovers to straight women. That just wouldn't happen. And, you know, there's so many reasons, like there's so much to unpack about this, like in that the gay man aesthetic happens to comply with normative dominant uh, fashion trends that can then be applied and, tr and, and kind of administered to people as a way to bring them into the normal fold. So they go to people like often in rural settings and say, Oh, you, <laughs> you farm man, why are you wearing those clothes? You must wear th these clothes. Why do you eat that food? You must eat this food. And so here we see that there is some degree of normativity applied within this uh, type of show that lesbian women do not have the same kind of access to because of their continued marginalization from these spheres, from being in, uh, within the kind of, in the domain of normalcy. So their dress, their types of conduct are not treated as something to aspire towards, but instead as something to police and something to actually uh, get away from. So like, we can imagine that the queer eye people would show up to and see a woman who's dressed maybe in traditionally masculine clothing, and they will try to make sure that they do not dress that way so that they dress more accordingly to their expectation. They don't actually do this. Maybe the earlier edition of the show did this more, but nevertheless, I think that uh, Halberstam's point is, is poignant in its description of the way in which queer eye can exist for five gay men, but not, we aren't quite there yet with five lesbian women. So perhaps lesbian women or, uh, and or butch women who may or may not be lesbian, are discriminated against because they pose a challenge to the essential bond between masculinity and men. So butchness is extremely important here. And with women who embrace and embody a butch identity, here we're not talking about trans men, we're talking about women who are identify uh, as butch and take on these uh, qualities and demonstrate these qualities, they pose a fundamental threat to masculinity in that masculinity, which is largely socially constructed, as we understand it socially constructed, in terms of dress, uh, in terms of uh, comportment, how one holds oneself, things like drinking IPAs or whatever, <laughs> like anything like that, 
is meant to have an implicit direct association with bodies, with specific bodies, with penises, which is totally absurd. But the entire ideology industry that we exist in functions to make sure that there is this connection maintained between the two. So butch women, in demonstrating these qualities without necessarily having a penis, therefore pose a fundamental challenge to the masculine status quo and to masculinity more generally. So there's been lots of work done on masculinity, no doubt. Like if anyone wants uh, more interesting stuff on masculinity, there's um, there's a great documentary about it by a guy named Katz. What's, uh, it's called Tough Guys, T-O-U-G-H, Tough, G-U-I-S-E, that I highly recommend that um, really looks at the ways in which masculinity operates. But it's super interesting. So there's been lots of work done on masculinity, no doubt, but very little on the ways that the crisis of masculinity produces its own solutions in terms of alternative forms of masculinity. So Halberstam celebrates these minority masculinities that don't replicate hegemonic masculinity. So like, if you're listening to this, you might say, well, what is masculinity? Like, what are you talking about? Because it's, it's a spectrum. Like, there's no such thing as it really. Uh, like, we know it when we see it, but if we were actually forced to define it, we'd run up against the brick wall. So when we think of masculinity, are we thinking like big muscly dude in the gym who like snorts creatine and like, I don't know, uh, then goes to the club and way too tight of shirts and does whatever. Like, is that masculinity? Is masculinity the the farm boy who lives like an ostensibly rugged lifestyle on the farm? Is masculinity an academic man type who can express uh, their feelings while gaslighting and disallowing women from entering these spaces? Uh, these t kind of soft boy types? Like, what is masculinity? Well, Halberstam recognizes that the, it is a spectrum and there are what he calls these minority masculinities. These people or these uh, masculinity categories that do not comply with maybe the more mainstream understanding of masculinity, like big burly bearded men who fight bad guys and save the day and get the, at the end of the day, get the girl and they go off into the sunset. There are masculinities that disrupt that and that open up possibilities for us to challenge what it means to embrace a masculine identity because Halberstam himself embracing a masculine identity like this is like, like myself, uh, we embrace these identities. It makes sense to us. And so we like, I don't want to get rid of it. I, I, it makes sense to me how I am. If it falls under the banner of masculinity, then that's, fine, I think. It's something, however, that I want to dissociate from its oppressive manifestations in terms of hegemonic masculinity, where like men's only <laughs> accepted emotional response is aggression or anger, impatience, uh, while, you know, men then say that women are emotional. Of course, this just works to naturalize men's emotions, to remove them from the category of emotionality and to then just bestow these qualities onto women. Anyways, so back to the point here, David. So when we reckon with the overwhelming statistics that 
mass shootings are committed by straight men, straight white men in the United States. Uh, they're, they're like overwhelmingly so. Men just generally committing the vast majority of these cases. Men committing like in Canada, like 94% of domestic violence cases are men inflicting violence against women and children. When we confront this, like we, we can't deny that there's a fundamental problem here. And of course, this is never really considered in term in the in the mainstream discourse around this by politicians, by uh, you know, by news outlets. There is always a willingness to dissociate this masculine identity from these culprits. And being masculine from these culprits, instead, they choose to pathologize them to say that, oh, that, you know, this was a bad apple, this person needed to be medicated, this person uh, was just in, in mental distress. However, if it's ever a black person, then it's like, oh, it's because of black culture. Or if it's any other person, then it's ascribed to their uh, their group identity and so on. Like, we, we, know, we know how this happens. So Halberstam suggests that subcultural masculinities within queer, lesbian, and trans communities may be a way to challenge models of manhood viewed as natural, unimpeachable, and even inevitable. These types of masculinity might actually undo all of the violent aspects of masculinity, of dominant strands of masculinity that reign in our society. So this chapter then isn't it's going to look at lesbian drag king culture and its influence upon hetero male comic films like Austin Powers and The Full Monty that uh, Halberstam calls uh, king comedies. So that, you know there's another great text by Halberstam it's the drag king I have it on my ottoman <laughs> The, the the just the drag king book uh, that features who we mentioned in the previous episode, I believe, um, Della the Grace's photography, at least uh, throughout and on the cover. Uh, very interesting text that I, I definitely recommend you check out. But these films are going to exemplify alternative models of masculinity. Now, like I said at the outset, Halberstam is also critical of the ways in which these masculinities are really commodified and sold to the public. Like, of course, that's that's not great. That has to be criticized. But there are uh, benefits. There are there's upsides to it. So these king comedies, Austin Powers and the Full Monty, reconceptualize masculinity, thereby subverting it. So these films comprise a counter-public space that contests white and heteronormative masculinities. So counter-public space referring to, is a, it's a charged term. Uh, and it refers to a space that is separate from the established zones in which people exchange ideas. Now, these established zones, be they in you know, Parliament or Congress or in uh, even like, you name it, like libraries uh, in academia, like these spaces do not exist neutrally. They reflect certain interests and they belong to certain histories. So, like, in the case of American political scene, like, how many times have you ever seen indigenous uh, speakers of the house, even though it's their land, right? So many indigenous nations. So, this is just to exemplify that 
a counter public is a rethinking of the very places that allow for speech and discourse to occur, thereby thinking about the different people who can occupy it and to expand the possibilities of people to occupy these spaces, to lend their voices, their experiences, and really rethink uh, what community means, what identity means, and, and so many other things. So the act of kinging or to king is to perform the earnest repetition to hyperbolic, uh, of the hyperbolic rec recreation of masculinity. Now, this idea is like, it's so interesting to me. Um, and there's a long history here. Like, for example, within the context of post-colonial studies, we could say that Homi Baba makes a similar case about the ways in which colonized people subvert colonial authority by replicating colonial identity. So colonial identity tries to maintain a strict coherence between whiteness, you know, mo being mostly Europeans, uh, whiteness, and all of their qualities, uh, their cultural qualities, like association with God, with the state, like the institutions they use with education and so on. And when colonized people start to take these things up, they start to disrupt that implicit connection between the colonizer and all of their institutions. So no longer can the colonizer claim that it is really theirs. Colonized people take this stuff up as well. Now, there are criticisms of this, like how effective of a transgressive strategy is it if colonized people are just taking up the colonizer's way of life? Like, of course, we can challenge that and think about that as I hit my mic. Uh, but what we see here is this same kind of replication of a dominant form of living, of an identity. And by virtue of that, we see it coming undone. We see it being challenged. Now, in a super complicated way, Halberstam offers us a distinction here between king or to king and camp, which is a super complicated term. So camp refers to a set of cultural icons and um, ways of presenting oneself that are demonstrably counter, uh, counter mainstream. So they will take on d a deliberate ironic value. They will try to embrace ways of presentation that do not comply with the norm. Uh, often in ways that, you know, would seem as though are counterintuitive and almost um, un unappealing in almost every way. And there is within this an opportunity to rethink, to think and rethink ways of self-presentation, ways of self-identification. Now, Halberstam suggests that camp has traditionally been the act of replicating femininity. So some pretty iconic examples of camp would be like the Rocky Horror Picture Show in which, uh, whatever, uh, what's the guy's name? Played by, oh my God, um, the Frankenfurter. Uh, he, he, his entire character is in drag the whole time. So he's performing this femininity throughout the film. I think that his 
I think that I don't think he identifies as a woman in the film. It's been so long. Well, actually, no, because we think of the song. She. Let's go with she. Dr. Frankenfurter, played by Tim Curry, playing uh, a woman who is a woman. But here we see that camp is this demonstration of femininity, whereas Halberstam suggests that um, kinging is a similar act. But instead of mimicking femininity or toying with femininity, it is toying with masculinity. So drag kings being women in some cases, putting on men's clothing, uh, passing themselves off as men, and essentially making, like, you know, making uh, a show of it, making it an art form. And by doing that, it disrupts the that implicit biological association between masculinity and having a penis. Here we see that it can be something that exists in the realm of signs, it, like in the form of artifice, in self-presentation. It's not natural. Sorry for the last couple of minutes of my confused rambling. So there are three key tactics at play here. There is masculine supplementarity, there is doubling, and there is indexical representation. I'm going to go through each. So here, uh, we think first, masculine supplementar supplementarity refers to the act of adding a feminine figure next to a drag king in order to bolster that king's masculinity. So uh, Halberstam uses some of Della La Grace's photography in which uh, Della La Grace Volcano includes images of drag kings next to hyper-feminized women with, who are wearing you know, clothes uh, traditionally associated with femininity, maybe even in lingerie and other types of self-expression that would exemplify femininity. And this acts as a supplement in order to confirm the masculinity of the uh, drag king. So this is the first tactic. And we see this in Austin Powers. So for those that, I mean, for those of you who don't know, Austin Powers is about a film is a film about uh, a spy named Austin Powers who is frozen in the 60s and then wakes up, is defrozen, is thawed in the 90s. I believe it was in the 90s in uh, Britain. And so he's this 60s spirit, free spirit, hippie guy living in the 90s. And he like always tries to compensate for his lacking masculinity because he's living in a new world where he, his form of masculinity being quite eccentric, being very, um, being very groovy, isn't exactly welcomed as a kind of masculinity. So he's always trying to perform this masculinity, always trying to live up to what it means to be masculine. And he's paired with, um, with a co-star, Elizabeth Hurley, who is this who's a woman. And this woman is always presented in a very hyper-feminine way, almost as a way to bolster, to uplift, to supplement Austin Powers' masculinity. So that's what we mean here by masculine supplementarity this act of supplementing masculinity with a feminine counterpart in order to uplift that masculinity. So 
That's the first tactic. The second tactic, as I mentioned, is doubling. Now this refers to replicating an imperfect masculinity imperfectly, like Dr. Evil's clone. So the antagonist within Austin Powers is Dr. Evil. Now, I think that there is something to be said here about ableism with um, maybe the way that Halberstam approaches this, where Dr. Evil produces a clone of himself that's called Mini-Me, who is a little person played by Vern Troyer in, in the second film. And here we see that there is this act of doubling uh, masculinity, this act of replicating it in a less masculine form as a way to uplift that original masculinity. So if you're hearing this and you're like, wait, why is the clone who is a little person, why is he seen as being imperfect? Unless, of course, there is this implicit association with imperfection and uh, being a short person. So I think that we have to be critical of this idea. But in any case, I think that the point can apply not along ableist lines, where cloning can be a way by which within film, masculinities are confirmed, where the clone, and in some cases, a clone who happens to be evil, will always be trying to live up to the protagonist's implied masculinity and their idea of their own masculinity, which is just a way by which to confirm the protagonist's primary place in the narrative and their masculine status. So that'll put us here into the third tactic, which is the fanciest term, indexical representation. Now this includes reducing body to signs that confirm that body's expectation of itself. So there's a point in the film in which Austin Powers is naked and the only reason we're not seeing his full nude body is because his co-star, played by Elizabeth Hurley, is placing objects just so conveniently in front of his genitalia. So there's like, at one point, I think there's like a hot dog and it shows that his genitalia is very long and large, which is something that he associates with his masculine status. He, the size of his genitalia is very important to him. He wants to have a large penis because that is a way by which he connects with his masculinity. And so this substitution of his genitalia with an artificial one by covering it, yet that nevertheless lends that original genitalia a, a, a very large size because there's a very big thing covering it. What that does is confirm his masculinity while concealing it. So this is what Halberstam means by indexical representation. We see a simulation of a thing that stands in for that thing and that actually becomes, in a sense, that thing in Austin's eyes. Austin, like this, we don't, we aren't privy to his thoughts in this moment, but it confirms his masculinity, which is all he really wants throughout the course of the film. But this also reveals that maleness and being masculine is no less constructed on the body than in clothing. Like these are constructions, these are simulations, these are representations of his masculinity, 
but that stand in for that masculinity nevertheless, revealing that masculinity is not natural, it's not real, but it is something that we associate or we understand through signs that are they're going to change all the time and our associations with it. Like even the size of one's penis in terms of masculinity. Uh, having a larger penis wasn't always associated with being more masculine. In fact, the opposite was the case. Where having a larger penis was associated with being um, not as masculine for much of history. And it's often uh, has often been a racist trope used uh, against so many non-white people in so many different ways. So instead of confirming masculinity, these three tactics interrogate masculinity. So supplementarity, doubling, and indexical representation interrogate this masculinity. Now it's important to acknowledge that these films are about men parodying masculinity. Would a queer protagonist have made the films as much money, we can ask? Probably not, which signals that these films are not like totally transgressive. They still belong to the same kind of continuum. Very much like we discussed with Boys Don't Cry, where you have a cis woman playing a trans man. Like, what does that reveal to us? Like, we clearly aren't there yet to be actually casting trans characters to play trans roles. Or trans characters to play non-trans roles. And so we just, you know, there's we can see that even within these ostensibly transgressive zones, we are mirroring, or there's still the mirroring, of dominant attitudes and dominant beliefs. And then there are examples of films like Woody Allen's films, you know, that great guy, Woody Allen. And uh, in his films, we see masculinity being questioned as well. I mean, Woody Allen's character in um, whatever that stupid movie is with um, Diane Keaton, Annie Hall, where Woody Allen is this very non-masculine character. He's someone who's like, super self-conscious, very pensive, not like a big burly masculine dude. And he's like, thinks that like he deserves women's attention. And like, like with films like 500 Days of Summer as well, where we see these protagonists who think that they have a right to women's bodies and to women's attention. Uh, and we might think like, okay, this is subverting masculinity, when actually we see masculinity being championed here because you could very well read that and say, oh, well, if he had been more masculine, then he wouldn't have had this problem. Or another annoying film like High Fidelity, which I not that you care about my opinion, but uh, I'd never been so close to just turning off a movie midway through. I'm like, ah, God, I hated that movie. Anyway, so Albert Stam suggests that British people were more willing to pursue these comedic feats uh, because, you know, Austin Powers British comedy um, and the Full Monty as well, or, yeah, Full Monty as well, because of the dec decline of empire in the second half of the 20th century and the rise of new ethnicities in post-imperial Britain. So Halberstam is suggesting here that because of the general decline of British empire's power, there was this crisis of masculinity and understanding what power meant. Now that'll put us here into the Full Monty, where this is a film about six steel workers who lose their jobs and try to make ends meet by taking up stripping. And so they play, or the film plays with masculinity because these men 
take uh they're trained by women as to how to properly strip they're, it's just so obvious like they're taking on a traditionally feminine uh sorts of dress and dance and uh in order to make ends meet now the full monty the title refers to the expectation that in order to do their job well they need to be go fully nude they need to go the full monty which is implied at the end of the film sorry spoiler spoiler so here we see that changing economic conditions comes with changing ideas of masculinity where these steel workers like steel workers like a job that is implicitly associated with masculinity often that is uh they lose their jobs and they lose their sense of masculinity which is totally absurd like this is kind of what's being conveyed in the film if masculinity is this natural thing surely your job it doesn't matter what job you have but it does because, you know, these things are highly culturally coded. So Haberstam's point here is not to reduce this to an economic issue, but to highlight how the film captures the way that men see themselves rather than women as the subjects who represent and figure a lack, as a psychoanalytic reading might suggest. So these men, in losing their jobs, feel like they've been emasculated, they've been castrated almost, and they are forced into these roles. So someone might read this and be like, oh yeah, of course, like a psychoanalytic reading might suggest, yeah, it is because they've been figuratively castrated that they take on these feminine attributes because women always live being castrated. So they, they, it resonates with these newly castrated men, which is totally absurd. Whereas Halberstam is suggesting that actually we see here different possibilities for masculinity. Why can't men do these things? Why can't men take up these roles? Why are they just arbitrarily disallowed culturally from doing these things and instead expected to work in a steel mill, right? Now, both of these films, Austin Powers and The Full Monty, and I, I, I can only really scratch the surface here. Halberstam goes into a lot more detail analyzing specific moments of the film, so I definitely recommend you just go read this chapter, the, the whole book, to get more out of it but just to give you an idea i hope this has been informative but halberstam is still like of course these films are not quite as transgressive as we might initially think like of course they erase racial conflict they um uphold ideas about heteronormativity and compulsory heterosexuality of course these things aren't being really challenged in the films but in any case they do point to and subvert masculinity and that puts us here into the final chapter. Chapter 7. What's that smell? Queer temporalities and subcultural lives. So queer space and temporality conflict with everything we know about life, right? Like, you know, you're a kid, then you're an adolescent, going to high school, then you, uh, you're supposed to work in the job market, get be an intern, get a job, get married, 2.3 kids, white picket fence, house, uh, retirement, old age, and then death. That's the script. Queer temporality and space disrupt all of that. So they oppose longevity and the normative life script. So this chapter will explore the stretched out adolescence of queer culture, uh, of queer culture makers that disrupt conventional accounts of subculture, youth culture, adulthood, and maturity. So if we look at this normative script, the idea is that your creative peak is in like your adolescence. Then after that, you're supposed to just get a job, become a drone, 
just, you know, work the nine to five, don't exercise any kind of creative potential unless you make that your job, which isn't the majority, and, you know, just do that until you die. Now, within queer culture, Halberstam suggests that it is a kind of stretched out adolescence, an adolescence that extends into adulthood, insofar as we understand adolescence in terms of the normative script as being the zone for cultural creation, of creativity, of engaging with community, not just like retreating into your suburb in your house where you don't really interact with anyone unless it's like in church or something. So adolescence is stretched out in that sense for queer communities because there is this effort to really maintain community bonds in these subcultures to make sure that these these bonds and to collect through through archiving and through everything else to maintain these connections and to push the boundaries of those subcultures through the creation of art, of expanding identity, and so on. So these queer subcultures are, they meet a lot of resistance, right? They're often targeted by institutions to uphold a norm. Their style and way of life are used as both evidence for their need of rehabilitation, and they are treated, uh, or they, they are a way of, like, they are both prosecuted, and they are a zone of survival for the people who occupy them, which is, like, kind of paradoxical, but there's no other really opportunity given in a world in which so many people, if you do not comply with the norm, are going to be policed and prosecuted. So you have to retreat into these zones that are then going to be even more policed and more prosecuted. So in their exclusion is revealed the lie of the promise of community that we are sold. Like we're sold that community is what matters. Family is what matters. But of course, what that means is just like biological community, biological family. Your like who you share blood with is all that really matters. As soon as you start to expand these categories to include other people, to expand what you know by family, what you know by community, then you re it's revealed that community has never really been the normative agenda's concern. It's been instead about maintaining family bonds so that people can work, have more kids, work, keep that cycle going. So here Halberstam thinks about Sleater Kinney's Ballad of a Lady Man as an example of queer punk scene that resonates with earlier forms of punk expression. So like punk music, the Ramones, the Clash, other examples like that. But these examples differ. The like Sleater Kinney's Ballad of a Lady Man as a musical example differs in that it actually considers in more detail gender. <laughs> class, race, community, and sexuality, whereas much of earlier punk, the punk scene was really focused on like white impoverishment, which is legit, like it's definitely a problem. But considerations of race, sexuality, gender were not as exemplified there as in these other examples of punk. So there are points of contact between drag king culture and queer punk. But what is informative is the way they are incorporated by the mainstream to be the focus of a joke, to be the butt of a joke. This is draining for subcultural producers whose work isn't rewarded in same ways other art forms are. So the only times like queer punk or drag king culture really enters into the mainstream is to be made fun of, which is obviously draining. So there must be a concerted effort to contribute to the project of claiming for the subculture the radical cultural work 
that either gets absorbed into or claimed by mainstream media, which is part of the process of archiving. Archiving and using different media to capture uh, a community's life blood, to capture its identity, is a way to reclaim it away from popular, uh, popular forms of communication and of entertainment. Which I wonder, and this is something I've been thinking about. If anyone has thoughts, I'd love to hear it. Um, but in terms of like big data and of the platformization of community, like I wonder what this will mean, like with Twitter and other big platforms, what it'll mean for uh, subcultural community. If, you know, these big platforms always try to gravitate towards a norm, like will it present a, a, a stronger barrier for these subcultural communities to create more bonds or is it an opportunity? Like, I think that, I think that time will ultimately tell, but uh, it's just something I've been thinking about. So queer theory engages with queer subcultures in ways that like previous considerations of subcultures would focus on white subcultures and the experiences of white youth mostly, which is legit. Like it's super interesting stuff as well, but queer subcultures have often been ignored where um, queer theory looks at these, or should, if it's not focused on white urban youth, uh, queer theory can look at these queer archives to see how these sites and events resist heteronormativity and by resisting normative life processes like childhood, adolescence, adulthood, retirement, death, where, you know, opening up the possibility of creativity beyond just adolescence so that you, you see this... Uh, kind of lengthening out of adolescence into adulthood. Now, another important aspect of these subcultures is that they blur the distinction between subcultural producers, like producing the, the kind of cultural identities, and the archivists and theorists who are thinking about these subcultures. Because if you aren't already a part of that community, it's very difficult to actually gain access and to understand it. So, people who are doing research into it often were people who actually belong to them, which is actually a very good way for this type of research to be done. And like from my own, own part, like I think that this is a big problem within academic circles where academics, and this is something I've been guilty of as well, academics just like mine uh, subcultural texts, use it for their own, they get their, t the, their you know degree, they get their title, and then they never engage with those texts again. Or they do, and they just keep bolstering their academic career uh, instead of actually giving back to those communities. Not, not everyone does this, but it's definitely an issue. So within these communities, because it's often so difficult to actually enter them, only people who are already privy to them, who are already aware, can be the ones to think about it, to reflect on these communities, to theorize them. So Haberstam prescribes that queer subcultural theory, as it is practiced increasingly, uh, by outsiders, it should focus on the most excluded communities, like lesbian subcultures and subcultures of color. In a sense, this is to free subcultures from their implicit association with white male youth. So queer archives have been formalized by thinkers, I mentioned this last time, or the episode before, like Anne Svekovich, Lauren Berlant, who merged ethnographic interviews with uh, performers and fans with research in the multiple archives that already exist online, and in other unofficial sites, like zines, like uh, un, really unaccessed web pages, web pages that are now 
non-operational anymore through posters, guerrilla art, and so on. So as another musical example, Halberstam looks at the Butchie's blend of punk and folk as a kind of mimicry of hypermasculine musical genre uh, in folk, folk music and punk for that matter. Uh, similarly, similarly, the music of bitch and animals music, uh, an animal, acts as archival records of lesbian subculture, which is definitely go and check out all of this music. Like it's it's definitely informative to hear it and to to know how Halberstam is reading um, their music. So to return to an idea mentioned earlier about subcultural prolongation of adolescence, you know, the idea that it is the prolonged period of, within queer communities, of the period the normative script associates with creativity, adolescence, we see this being prolonged. Halberstam qualifies that we see similar trends even within the dominant normative traditions but they often are just like the interests of white men. So for example, Halberstam points to jackass as like this adult adolescence, which isn't transgressive in any way. Like it's just mindless entertainment, but um, it's still important to draw that distinction so as not to conflate the two, to confuse queer subcultural extension of adolescence with these other examples of just almost absurdity. And queer subcultures aren't just doing this to get rich. Like they aren't drinking paint because they'll make money and they'll get clicks. Like they're doing it as a mode of survival. Like this is the way that their community survives. They aren't creating an absurd community where they beat each other with bats and then like whatever absurd thing like people do for to make money in their life. Like this is what people do this. Now it's also important not to treat queer youth purely as victims of homophobia and oppression. Like, of course, there are these forces at play and they have to be challenged. But the way that sometimes these forces of oppression are responded to are by institutionalizing these youth, by seeking to rehabilitate them, to put them in group support through outreach. So these narratives risk chaining queer identity to the youth to say that, oh, we got to save the youth before they get become adults. We can properly conform them so that they'll be good, proper, socialized adults. And it erases the ways that previous generations, and there are currently so many uh, aged queer people who aren't young in the way that we understand youth. So it's like, it's, it's this double erasure in that it's erasing older people's experiences as being queer, and also this effort to erase queerness itself even among the youth or to treat it like something that has to be treated. So Haverstam then considers how homoeroticism is uh, is packaged and sold through boy bands like I don't know <laughs> what's a, why am I drawing a blank like Backstreet Boys. However Halberstam sees in them an interest an interesting inversion of masculine identity that adopts many feminine social traits like singing about romance, singing about love, dancing, uh, you know, not, not playing instruments, like just focusing on the voice, which is often associated with femininity. So Haberstam is more ready to celebrate queer reimaginings of boy bands, like with the, with the drag king boy band uh, named Backdoor Boys instead of Backstreet Boys. So whereas Backstreet Boys is just like essentially a, a corporate creation 
to sell CDs to uh, like a, a pretty much a single demographic of young girls. Backdoor Boys actually poses more of a fundamental threat to the way that masculinities can be packaged, sold, and how it uh, feminine the appropriation of femininity by men, by corporate elite, uh, the way that um, Backdoor Boys problematizes that and presents alternatives to that commodification. So this group, in addition to other things, disturbs the binary between youth and adulthood. And we see a similar uh, example within the hip-hop group Deep Dick Collective that identifies as homo-hop instead of hip-hop and that challenges hip-hop's heteronormativity, which is obviously uh, part of hip-hop uh, music, a pretty big part of it, like other genres as well, like rock and roll, country, and there are also examples of subverting those genres as well, but Halberstam focuses on this one. And it is through that replication and by making subtle tweaks that are never, they're significant, but subtle, that actually poses these fundamental challenges to what we take to be normal, how we understand the world. So queer history of subcultures with a focus on queer temporality, in Haberstam's words, tracks the activity of community, building, traces the contours of collectivity, and follows the eccentric careers of those pioneers who fall outside the neat models of narrative history or normative standardized history. And yeah, that'll pretty well close us off here. I hope that what I said was informative and that you you understand what the text is about. If there's anything I got wrong, anything I excluded, I'd love to hear about it. I'm always interested in hearing your perspectives. I hope that after four episodes, you've been able to stick with me here and I didn't lose you in episode one or two. But for those of you that stuck around this time, thank you very much. It means a lot. And yeah, on that note, catch you next time. Take care.